Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about episode 3 of Wikipedia reading about the inner rocky planet called Mercury. I think we all know about it. Um, it uh, is always at most um, two hand spans from the sun. Yeah, so it's uh, an evening or morning star, a bit like um, Venus, and uh, it's a small, fairly dense, rocky planet. Dense material, dense because the actual material is dense, not because of uh, the compression density that you get. So eventually, as you build up, you get something which is infinitely dense, a black hole. And we're just going to read about it being tidally locked. That is, rather than one side always facing the sun, it uh, it spins so that I think every um, two orbits it does uh, one and a half rotations, and so it does two full. Is that yeah? For for, for every orbit, it does one and a half rotations. So for, well, let's read it and see if we get back. For many years it was thought that Mercury was synchronously tidally locked with the Sun, rotating once each orbit and always keeping the same direction towards the Sun. In the same way, the same side of the Moon always faces Earth. So as far as Earth was concerned that there's this weird, weird planet sitting in the same position all the time. Radar observations in 1965 uh, prove that the planet was three to two spin orbit rotations. So it, um, uh, it spins in space three times, but orbits twice. So it takes a day, takes two years, and it goes, it goes into it. Uh, the eccentricity uh, of Mercury's orbit makes its resonance stable at perihelion, when the solar tide is strongest, the sun is nearly still in Mercury's sky. Amazing. So, it's, it's coming in fast, and it actually is rotating and keeping the sun at the same position. So, you can imagine it, it's going, uh, it's going um, rotating, looking from the top, it's rotating around counterclockwise, but it's going... Um, also counterclockwise, so it's actually tracking the sun. Um, the rare 3-2 residential tidal locking is stabilised by variance of the tidal forces along Mercury's eccentric force orbits, acting on a permanent dipole component of Mercury's mass distribution. That is its dumbbell shape, I suppose. The dipole moment is the only way that you could get that. So it's so we've got some mass above and below the equator, so it's above above and below. So a dumbbell is a, di a mass dipole, whereas a bowling ball is a mass monopole. Um, in a circular orbit, there is no such variance, so the only resonance stabilised in such an orbit is one-to-one, e.g. the Earth-Moon, where the tidal force stretching the body along the centre of body line exerts a torque that aligns the body's axis of the least inertia, the longest axis, and the axis aforementioned, um, and the axis of the aforementioned dipole always points to the centre. So, what is interesting there is that the moon is uh, permanently 
misshapen. It's not completely spherical. It's slightly globed, such that it's, it's glob always facing us. Um, when the total force stretching the body along the centre body line exerts a torque that aligns the body axis with the least inertia. It always points towards the centre. However, with noticeable eccentricity, like the Mercury orbit, the tidal force has a maximum at perihelion and therefore stabilises the resonance, like 3 to 2, enforcing uh, that the planet's points its axis uh, of least inertia roughly at the sun when passing through the perihelion. So that's, that's sort of like it's, you can imagine, throwing a, a weight. It uh, stops it. And then, so it sort of keeps it going, and then when the tidal force weakens, it begins to, to spin a bit more, can spin a bit more. The original reason astronomers thought it was secretly locked was that whenever Mercury was best placed for observation, it always was nearly at the same point of the 3-2 resonance, hence showing the same face. This is because, coincidentally, Mercury's rotation period is almost exactly half the synodic period with respect to Earth. So, isn't that amazing? So, over many years, um, when the Earth is, is picking it up, it's actually spun an odd, uh, an even number of spins. Um, due to the 3-2 spin orbit resonance, a solar day length between two meridian transits of the Sun lasts about 130, uh, 100 and 76 Earth days. A sidereal day is a period of rotation lasts uh, 58.7 days. So in that time, it's one day, we, rather it takes a whole year to spin, uh, you know, for the um, sky to spin, the stars would be racing along each 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 day. So its its day um, lasts 176 days, but it rotates at uh, just under 60. Simulations indicate the orbital eccentricity of Mercury varies chaotically from nearly zero to more than 0 0.545 uh, over millions of years due to perturbation. So it's it's actually getting really uh, 0.5 is quite elliptical due to the perturbations from the other planets. This was thought to explain Mercury's three to two spin orbit resonance rather than the more usual one to one because this state is more likely to arise during a period of high eccentricity. So that the high eccentricity really locked in. However. Accurate modelling based on realistic model of tidal responses has demonstrated Mercury was captured in a 3 to 2 spin orbit state, the very early stage of its history, uh, within 20 or more likely 10 million years of its formation. So, just got doing it. Numerical simulation shows that the future uh, secular orbital resonance perihelion interaction with Jupiter may cause eccentricity of Mercury orbit to increase to a point where there is a 1% chance the planet will collide with Venus within the next 5 billion years. So, isn't that pretty amazing? That it, although it, it will just go up and sort of just lob there in Venus or rush past 
so it's actually wide enough to get to Venus. It's actually 50% or a third, up to a third of the way between Earth and the Sun. So we're 150 uh, million miles. It's uh, 50 million miles. Um, the advance of perihelion. So there's aperihelion and perihelion. In 1859, the French astronomer Urbain Leverrier reported the slow precession of Mercury's orbit around the Sun could not be ex completely explained by Newtonian mechanics and the perturbation of known planets. He suggested, among possible explanations, that another planet, perhaps, instead a series of smaller corpuscles, might exist in an orbit even closer to the Sun than Mercury to account for the perturbation. Other explanations included slight oblateness of the Sun, the success of the search for Newton based on perturbation in orbits Uranus, led astronomers to place faith in the possible explanation. The hypothetical planet, so they've got yet another planet, uh, was named Vulcan, but no such planet was ever found. Isn't that amazing? So there's Mercury and then there's an even closer planet called Vulcan. The perihelion position of Mercury is... Uh, about 1.5 degrees per century relative to the Earth, or uh, 574 arc seconds per century, relative to the internal ICRF, Newtonian mechanics, taking into account all the effects from the other planets predicts the precession of um, really five thousand five hundred and seven degrees so there's a difference of just a small point uh, per century a small difference of about a hundredth of a degree Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity provided the explanation for the observation precessions by formalizing gravitation as a mediated by the curvature of space-time the effect is small, just 42.98 arc seconds per century for Mercury. It is therefore requires little over 12 million orbits um, for a f uh, full excess term. Similarly, a much smaller effects exist for the solar system bodies. Uh, 8.62 arc seconds per century for Venus, 3.84 for Earth, 1.35 for Mars, and uh, 10... 0.05 for Icarus, whichever that is. Icarus must be strange. The Einstein formula per perihelion shift per revolution is E is 24 pi cubed A squared on T squared C squared 1 minus E, where E is the orbital eccentricity. A is the major axis, T is the orbital period. Filling in the values gives a result of 0. 0.35 arc seconds per revolution or um, 0. 0.4297 arc seconds per Earth year, i.e. 42.97 arc seconds per century. So it's within a, f a no fraction of percent. Like it's, uh, the actual value is... 42.98, Einstein's value is 42.97. This is close agreement with the accepted Mercury per perihelion of just one hundredth of an arc second. 
biological considerations, habitability, there may be scientific support based on studies reported in March 2020 for considering that parts of the planet Mercury may have been habitable and perhaps that life forms, albeit likely primitive microorganisms, may have existed on the planet. Observation. Mercury's apparent magnitude is calculated to vary between minus 2.48, brighter than Cirrus, uh, and uh, superior conjunction, that's when it's closest to us, no, I don't know, uh, and 7.25 below the vis visibility of the immaculate eye, around the inferior conjunction. So I don't know what that means, it's... So superior is when it's furthest away from us. Uh, what I was going to say is that I'm going to have to really uh, go through the magnitude, start settling magnitude. The mean apparent magnitude is 0 0.23. Well, the standard deviation of 1.78 is the largest of any planet, so it's the most variable. The mean apparent magnitude at superior conjunction is minus 8.9, while the inferior is at 5.9. 93. I don't know what that means. Observation of Mercury is complicated by the proximity to the Sun. Yes, I would agree with that. And when you point it out to people, you say, oh, that's, that's Mercury. They don't, they don't care. I don't know. As it's lost in the Sun's glare for much of the time, Mercury can be observed for only a brief period during either morning or evening twilight. Mercury can like several other planets, be the brightest stars uh, be seen during a t total solar eclipse. Oh yeah, okay. Like the Moon and Venus, Mercury exhibits phases as seen from the Earth. Its new or inferior conjunction and full or superior conjunction the planet is rendered visible to Earth on both these occasions because of being obscured by the Sun, except its uh, new phase during a transit that is that it's um, that you can actually see an eclipse mercury is technically the brightest as seen from earth when it's at full phase although mercury is the farthest from earth when it's full the greater illuminated area invisible and the oppositional brightness surge more than compensates for the distance now the oppositional brightness surge is the fact that um, uh, things, uh, the moon is brighter, at a full moon it's brighter than, it's got crystals on it which are retro-reflecting the opposite is true for Venus, which appears brightest when it's a crescent, because it's much closer to the Earth than when it's gibbous ok, so that's because it's actually coming to Earth so much nonetheless, the brightest full phase appearance of Mercury is essentially impossible at time for pr practical observation because the extreme proximity to the Sun. Mercury is best observed at the first and last quarter, although they are phases of lesser brightness. The first and last quarter phases occur at the greatest elongation east and west from the Sun, respectively. Uh, at both these times, Mercury's separation of the Sun ranges between 17.9 and 27.8 degrees of perihelion. At greatest western elongation, Mercury rises at the earliest before sunrise. At greatest east elongation, it sets the latest after sunset. 
so you can see see what it's doing there. Mercury can easily be seen from the tropics and subtropics more than uh, from higher latitudes. Viewed from low latitudes at the right times of the year, the ecliptic intersects the horizon at a steep angle. Mercury is 10 degrees above the horizon when that planet appears directly above the sun. I its orbit uh, be below the horizon so the sky is completely dark. Um, this angle is maximum altitude at which Mercury is visible in a completely dark sky. So that's actually uh, only 10 degrees. In middle latitudes, Mercury is far more often and easily visible from the southern hemisphere than from the northern. This is because Mercury's maximum western elongation occurs only during autumn in the southern hemisphere, whereas the greatest eastern elongation happens only during late winter in the southern hemisphere. In both these cases, the angle which the planet orbits intersects the horizon is maximised, allowing the rise several hours before sunset uh, in the former instance, and not until several hours after sundown in the latter uh, uh, southern mid-latitudes such as Argentina, South Africa. An alternate method of viewing Mercury involves observing the planet during daylight hours when the conditions are clear, ideally when it's at greatest elongation. This allows the planet to be found easily, even when using telescopes with 3.1 uh, uh, inch apertures. Care must be taken to ensure the instrument isn't pointed directly towards the sun because of the risk of eye damage. This method bypasses the limitation of twilight observing when the ecliptic is located at a low elevation, e.g. on autumn evenings. Ground-based telescope observations of Mercury reveal only an illuminated partial disk uh, with limited detail. The first two spacecraft to visit the planet Mariner 10 was Mariner 10, of two, uh, and mapped about 45% of its surface, from 74 to 75. The second, the Messenger spacecraft, uh, which after three Mercury flybys between 2008 and 2009 attained an orbit around Mercury in March 17, 2011 to study um, and map the rest of the planet. The Hubble Space Telescope cannot observe Mercury at all due to the safety procedures that prevent it pointing too close to the Sun. Because the shift uh, of 1.5 revolutions a year makes up a seven-year cycle. Uh, in the seventh year, Mercury follows almost exactly earlier by seven days the sequence of phenomena it showed in seven years before. I don't really understand that. I don't know whether that's that's a coincidence between the Earth and and um, Mercury orbit observation history. The earliest known recorded observations of Mercury are from Mu Apin tablets. These observations were most likely made by the Assyrian astronomer around the 4th century BC. The cuneiform name used to designate Mercury on Mount Apin's tablets, uh, transcribed as Odo-Im-Gu-Yu, the jumping planet. Babylonian records of Mercury takes back uh, take, uh, date back to the first. Um, thousand years BC. Hey, Babylon! 
uh, called the plant Nabu after the message of the god in their mythology. The ancients knew Mercury by different names depending on whether it was an evening or morning star. By 3005, sorry, 350 BC, the ancient Greeks had realised the two stars were one. They knew the planet as something or other meaning twinkling and or for fleeting motion, a name that retained in modern Greeks. The Romans named the planet after the Swiss footed Roman messenger god Mercury, uh, which they equated with the Greek Hermes. Um, because it moves across the sky faster than any other planet. The astronomical symbol for Mercury is a stylized version of, the, of Hemi's Candorus, whatever that is. <sighs> the Greco-Egyptian astronomer Ptolemy wrote about the possibilities of planetary transits across the face of the sun in his work Planetary Hypotheses. He suggested that no transits had been observed either because the planets such as Mercury were too small to see or because the transits were too infrequent. In ancient China, Mercury is known as the Owl Star. It's associated with the direction north and the phase of water of the five phases systems of metaphysics. Modern Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese cultures refer to the planet literally as the water star based on the five elements. Hindu mythology used um, the name Buddha or Mercury and this god was thought to preside over Wednesday. The god Odin or Woden is dramatic paganism was associated with the planet Mercury and Wednesday. The mayor may have mayor mayor may have there you go represented Mercury as an owl, possibly four owls, two for the morning aspects and two for the evening aspects, that served as a messenger to the underworld. The medieval Islamic astronomy, the Andusan astronomer Abdul Isha Ibn Ibrahim al-Zakri Oh dear, I'm going to have to stop and get, bring in the washing. Okay, so stop there for a moment and we'll just go. Another podcast, another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.